And this morning, yet again, we have the privilege of hearing God's word read and proclaimed together. He is addressing us and sending forth his word and the power of the spirit so that we'd receive grace from him. And so let's listen expectantly to him this morning. And as we do so, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 27. We're going to be reading verse 1 through chapter 28, verse 2 together this morning. It's a passage found under the translator heading, David flees to the Philistines. And it should say, again, because we've been here before. Si habla español, abran sus Biblias a 1 Samuel capítulo 27, versículos 1 a capítulo 28, <laughs> dos. El título de la traducción dice, David, entre los filisteos. And this morning, if you're not familiar with the Bible, I know that this is a safe place to learn how to read the Bible. We're all learning together each and every week. And if you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. You can grab one from the chair in the center of the aisle, or you can go on your phone's browser, open up your Bible app of choice, or just go on your web browser and type in 1 Samuel chapter 27, beginning in verse 1. And this morning in English, we'll be reading from the ESV translation. And so we come again to the book of 1 Samuel, a book which is about the king who is, that is God. And the central problem that has uh, come to, to pass and come out in this book is that God's people reject God, the king who is, as the king for them. Instead, they seek after a human king like all the nations, and in so doing, they reject God. We know the story. He gives them what they want to show them that what they want is not what they need, and they come to long for a new king, a better king, a king that would lead them back into the peace of God, that would bring them into the fullness of all the benefits of his kingdom, a king that would pay the price for their rebellion, a king who would keep them and hold them fast and prevent them from sliding out from under his rule again. We know this king is Jesus, but the King David, the man who would come after Saul, he, he points to him. He corresponds to what we see in the coming king that is Christ. And David, in the story of 1 Samuel, he's been on the run. He's been anointed to be king, but his way to the throne has been interrupted by Saul's persecution. And today, it gets a little worse. His enthronement now is interrupted even further by a time of exile. David finds himself outside the land of promise, outside the land of Israel. And he's experiencing an exile of sorts. And for us this morning, what we need to see is that this isn't just a sort of particular and specific instance of David's own exile, of his own struggling and suffering. There's actually something in it for us as we look at our lives, really universally, and see that kind of exilic experience, that, that, that's for everyone who lives life under the sun. This text is meant to show us and give us a window into the realities of life in a fallen world and the reality of God's grace as it meets us in such a place. And so this morning, without further ado, let's turn our attention to 1 Samuel chapter 27. I'll read again through verse 2 of chapter 28, and then we'll pray for God's Spirit to help us receive and understand and apply God's Word. And so beginning in verse 1, our text reads, Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. 
Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, and Achish, the son of Maach, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household. And David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And then, and when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given to me in one of the country towns, that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now, David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites and the Gerizites and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as Shur to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jeramelites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking, He has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. And in those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me and the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Church, these are God's words. Let's pray for the help of God's Spirit. Oh Lord, we thank you for your great grace that you would speak to us, that you would hold us fast, that you would draw us near, and that you would continue to patiently and kindly and mercifully bear with us in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our struggling to live the lives you've, you've called us to. And Lord, we pray that this morning, as the word is read and proclaimed, that you would use your spirit to work in our hearts, that you would open our eyes to understand your truth, that you would open our hearts to receive it, and that you would empower us and equip us to act um, and to respond to your grace. Lord, this morning, we ask that you would do this for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So this is not a clean and tidy passage. <laughs> if you didn't catch it, this text is Godless. Did you see that? It didn't mention the name of God, of Yahweh, once in the text. And beyond that, no commentary is offered on David's actions um, in Gath. And so how's this for a little complexity, looking at the details of the text that we just read? It's not simple, it's not tidy. This text that I just read could be argued to suggest the following, that David... The king, after God's own heart, flees and seeks security apart from God. 
It could be argued that David kills without the explicit direction from God. That David goes on deceptively. He's deceiving Achish, the king of Gath, again. He's a liar, continually, habitually. And finally, that David, he actually even turns traitor. And he serves in Achish's army. He, the warrior of Israel, is now serving as a member of the fighting force of the pagan Philistines. On the surface, this is complex. On the surface, this is a little troubling, isn't it? And a question for you. Do you ever wish that when you read stories like this and you open your Bible sometimes, that the Bible didn't have stories like this that showed just how far the heroes of our faith can fall? You ever wish it was a little bit cleaner, a little bit easier? You wouldn't have to go through any apologetic difficulties when you're talking to your friends or neighbors about the stuff you see God's people do in His Word? Didn't you wish sometimes that these things wouldn't be there? That the stories that we encounter would be less messy? Or that the stories that we would read would always make it just, you know, exactly clear what the point of application was for us. That they would always be exactly clear how this connects to God and to the gospel. Don't you wish it was just a little bit more obvious sometimes? It's a little bit easier to grab a hold of. Well, if that's what you wish this morning, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but this story is not one of those stories. It's a story, church, of David's exile which causes us to consider for, for ourselves what life in a fallen world is like. It meets us in the reality of our own lives. Life in a fallen world, the lives that we live along with David, are messy. They are complex. They are fraught with our own sin and suffering, yet somehow still marked by God's sustaining and empowering grace. This story that we just read is really less about what David is doing and how we should imitate his example. And it's more about what God is doing to meet and to sustain us as we live our own imperfect lives in a fallen world. And so this is a story that meets us right where we're at. As men and women who, as the book of Ecclesiastes says, live life under the sun. And even as we've been redeemed by Christ, we haven't yet been delivered from the presence of all the pain and suffering that that's in this world. I don't have to prove that to you. You, you. you know that. We have wisdom that we've received from the Word of God and from the Spirit of God, yet we don't all see as clearly as we will one day. We see now in a mirror dimly. It's hard to know how to live and what to do, even how to apply the Word of God to our lives sometimes. And the presence of sin in us and its effects all around us still linger and still affect our day-to-day lives. David's Exile Church, it, it teaches us this, that our lives in a fallen world are painful, a struggle to be faithful, and yet, by God's grace, still fruitful. Let me say that again. This is where we're headed this morning. We'll unpack this statement. Life in a fallen world is painful, a struggle to be faithful, and yet, by God's grace, still fruitful. Still fruitful. And as we think of that, that, that term, fruitful, we remember how from the very beginning of the Bible's storyline, when sin first entered into the world, thistles and thorns, they, 
There you go. Thank you, guys. I even forgot. <laughs> ouch. Thistles and thorns, ouch, entered as a result of sin. And we see that David, he flees the promised land and finds himself in the midst of thorns. His life, as we'll see, is marked by an absence of God's means of grace and the presence of much violence. His life is complicated by a choice between prudence or unfaithfulness. Has, has he made the right or wrong decision in fleeing to the land to seek refuge amongst the Philistines? And yet, even as he finds himself in that place, in Gath, even as he's surrounded with thistles and scratched with thorns, the harvest of his life is not without fruit. And we, we see this in the text. Life under the sun, life as Galatians 1.4 says, in this present evil age, it is not often comfortable. It's not often simple. Yet, it can always be fruitful. By God's kind and preserving grace, David's time amongst the Philistines, as marked as it is by his own weakness and his own imperfection, is also marked by God's power and his perfect purposes going forth, nevertheless. And so, church, really, this is better news for us than if this passage was simple <laughs> and the heroism of David was clear and we were called simply to imitate it. It's better for us that we have a text like this, better than a story that holds up to us a model of David's faithfulness and calls us to do likewise, is a story that holds out God's faithfulness toward David in a way that encourages us in the midst of the complexities and the sufferings and the difficulties of life under the sun. This text is a window into life in a cursed, fallen, and sin-stained world. It reveals the difficulty with which even God's most faithful, his greatest of servants like David, have in navigating life and living faithfully. It faces, this text does, head-on the pain and the complexity of our lives and ultimately causes us and shows us and convinces us that we have nowhere to rest in the midst of all this other than the grace of God. And so in its own strange way, this, this text is full of grace <laughs> and only grace as our hope, as our rock, as our foundation for fruitfulness, living lives that please and glorify God in, in the world in which we live, being the kind of people that we are. And so we need to be reminded of this reality this morning so that we can be reminded of what we need to seek and find in God as we live our lives under the sun. And so we'll unpack this this morning, under three points, which will guide our time for the rest of our uh, time together this morning, by taking apart our main statement. We need to see these realities and apply them to our lives. And the first is this, that life is painful. Second, that life is a struggle to be faithful. And third, yet, by God's grace, life is still fruitful. And this brings us to our first point. Life is painful. Life is painful. Read with me again verses uh, 1 through 4. It says that David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. Death is in front of him and around him and pursuing him. He says, There's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines, which would involve him leaving the land of God's people, 
the land of promise. He said, it's better for me to go there and be absent from my people and be absent from what I love, be absent from friends, be absent from family, be absent from the worship of God's gathered people. I'll go to Gath. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I'll escape out of his hand. And so David, it says, he arises and he goes, all 600 men with him, their wives, their kids, his wives, and they make a new home in Gath. David is fulfilling now his worst fear that he mentioned back in chapter 26, if you look up ahead on your, on your page in your Bible, to verse 19. As he has just spared Saul, and Saul continues to relentlessly pursue him, David is pleading to Saul, would you stop this? Would you end this, that I might not anymore run? Because where will I have left to go if this continues? And he says this to Saul, now therefore, let my Lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day, that I should have no share, he says, in the heritage of the Lord. Driven me out, that I wouldn't be able to share in what the Lord has for his people. Saying, go, serve other gods. Now therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. And what David is saying here, as he's making this plea to Saul, he says, please, give it up, <laughs> that I might not have to flee the land of God's people, that I might not, he says, have my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord, that I might not be sent away to a foreign land to serve foreign gods, but I might still be amongst my people, <laughs> amongst my friends, that I may not know the pain of homesickness, that I might not be heartbroken, that I might, might not be missing the sanctuary. David makes this plea to Saul, but lo and behold, in the next chapter, his fears are realized. The words in 19 and 20 of, of chapter 26 are fulfilled. As David finds himself now outside the land, he is among the Philistines, and that means away from God's people. Life, life is painful. It's marked by homesickness, and, and we know that. It's marked by broken relationships. David's been betrayed by his friend, Saul. And there's suffering around him. Death is knocking at his door constantly, and he feels the pressure, and he sees the reality of life in this painful world. And whether or not, we'll talk about as we carry on, David's exile was in some part self-imposed. <laughs> the fact of the matter is that his life was marked by a painful experience of absence. And we'll look at this, this painful experience under the two headings of absence and then violence. But we see first that David, he's absent from where he wants to be. And for us in our own lives, certain seasons of life can make it more difficult than others when it comes to, most chiefly and importantly, as David longed for, to experience fellowship with God and his people. We see that because of the curse and because of the fallen world in which we live, sin as it did from the very beginning, it separates. And life in a fallen world is often marked by an experience of separation from the Lord and an experience of separation from his people, from his body. And David is feeling the pain of that right now. And sometimes, yes, this separation, this exile that we experience, it can be self-inflicted, right? We sin. And in our shame, 
we don't draw near to God. Who's been there before? I I have. We, We sin and we hide, just like Adam and Eve hid from God amongst the bushes. Sin separates them from God, but all too often we can respond to it by withdrawing further, feeling farther, experiencing the exile and the exilic effects of our sin as it separates us from God. Other times, however, the absence that we can experience, it's not self-imposed. I don't know if you guys remember the little thing we did two years ago, the the pandemic. (laughs) You guys remember that one? Remember for 15 weeks, we had no place to meet and to gather together because of the way in which the the pandemic affected our previous reservation and meeting place. Sometimes, yes, the circumstances of our lives aren't self-imposed, but yet still, because we live in a fallen world full of sin and suffering and, yes, even disease, we cannot gather together with God's people. We feel that separation. We feel that absence, and we long to be together again. We long for fellowship to be restored. And this is a little bit of what David's experiencing right now. He's far from the place of worship. It's not that God doesn't go with him everywhere, but there's something special, right, about being together where God's people are worshiping. He can't go to church, as it were. He can't worship like we're worshiping now. He can't participate in the sacrifice because Saul has him on the run, and now he's in a land of foreign temples and foreign deities. And so, just as he mourned the prospect of being in this foreign land in chapter 26, now he finds himself in the mournful reality of separation as he's absent from the place of God's presence, as he's absent from the gathering of God's people. And this brings anguish to him. But that's not all. (laughs) The second way in which this this text is a window into our fallen world is all the violence in it, (laughs) right? We see at the top, David is fleeing Saul because his life is on the line. He carries on and he becomes a kind of marauding desert raider, (laughs) as it were, like a pirate in the desert. And then he ends up in this chapter, start of chapter 28, by being enlisted into the army of Achish. This whole text is full of violence, of bloodshed, of life uh, being pursued, death knocking at the door. This is the, the world that David is living in. And so we see that David's life is a violent one, and life in a, in a, in a fallen world it is a violent one. And even as we read this story, this is something that as we read our Bibles, we probably wish sometimes we could smooth, smooth over, right? That we wish we could just uh, see David, the man after God's own heart, the good king who points us to the true king, uh, coming out looking a little cleaner, right? Wishing his hands were a little less bloody as we read about his life and as his adventures, about what he's doing to pass the time for that 16 months that he is in Gath. But yet, David is a man of war. He engages in violence that some commentators even find to be unjustified or to be overkill, and we'll get a little bit more to that later. But really, beyond just David, for us as we read our Bibles, what about all the other violence that we encounter in the Scripture? This is no small thing, no isolated incident that we would read here in chapter 27. The story of God's people is characterized by war, by plague, by unrest all around, and There's plagues against Egypt in which the firstborn son of all those who weren't covered by the blood of the lamb, that son is slain. In the Exodus, God commands his people to then enter into a promised land and take it by putting to death all of the inhabitants that they would encounter there, taking no prisoner and sparing no one. And even in the saving work of Christ, the second and true Exodus that he brings about through his cross Our salvation is accomplished 
by the violent and the tortured death of the Son of God. He was crushed for us. He endured pain and suffering for us. And so we see that God's people and God's work in the world are often associated with a lot of violence. This is something we can't smooth over. This is the reality of the world in which we live. Why is this? Because as we said, the world is fallen. If not for the rebellion of men starting in the garden, if not for the rebellion of angels beginning with with Lucifer and his host, if it wasn't for that, there would be peace. If it wasn't for the selfish and sinful pursuits of our hearts, we wouldn't be at war with each other. We wouldn't be in conflict with one another. If it wasn't for back then the evil of the Canaanites and their false worship, the human sacrifice they performed in their God-dishonoring ways, there would have been no need for a conquest of the land. If it wasn't for our own treason against God and all the violence we've done to his glory by refusing to acknowledge it and to live for it, then the Son of God wouldn't have needed to die for our sin. Yet, God in his wisdom, he worked through our violence even to him. And even as sinful hands of men dealt a death blow to the Son of God, God in that was dealing a death blow to the very sin that led to all that violence. He killed the cause of pain when he killed sin upon the cross. He conquered that which has brought on death since the beginning, such that all those who place their faith and all that God accomplished through the death of Christ would come to know the peace and the power of his resurrection life and live in a world that, though it's still full of the the presence of violence, we would live in a world now with hearts that are filled with the presence of his spirit and the surpassing peace of Christ. And I I, I make a, a point of putting all that out there to say that in the fallen world, in the lives we live, it becomes clear that in this world of absence, when our hearts are broken and longing, in a world of violence, when unrest is all around us, we need the peace and the rest of Christ, don't we? We need to find that in him. And so the question for us this morning is, where can we go to find a particular and tangible shelter in this world? Where can we go? Is there a place where we can experience refuge as we live in a fallen and dark world? And I would argue that the answer presents itself in our text. It presents itself with David's plea back in chapter 26, where he says, don't cast me out of the land. Don't take me away from God's people. Keying in on David's uh, heart cry there, we can see that if we're looking for a shelter, if we're looking for a place of refuge, if we're looking to go somewhere that we could be comforted, that we could be cared for, that we could be strengthened, guess where we can go? We can go to church. We can go to church. We can do what David was prevented from doing in his exile. We can come and gather together to be strengthened and to be comforted as we live our lives in this present and evil age. Where God is, church, is where we need to be. And of course, yes, he's with us by his spirit, and that's not a small thing, (laughs) but he's also made the church his home. And more than that, we see in the scriptures that even as we ourselves are a temple of the Holy Spirit, the church is the living temple of God. Living stones assembled in the power of the Spirit, filled with the presence of the Spirit, serving and living and working and operating in the gifts and the graces of the Spirit, such that to come to church is to experience God working in a particular way in which he he doesn't work anywhere else. He doesn't work 
in our home Bible studies. He doesn't work in our uh, personal time of prayer. He doesn't work when we're listening to a good podcast in quite the same way as he does when we gather together. When we gather as a church, it is a means of grace to us. And so the application of this would be, in one part, to see the church, what we're doing even now as a shelter, a sanctuary, and a gracious refuge from God for us. It's a gospel outpost, right? Standing where we can come in. It's like a fortress where we can find shelter in a world of darkness. We can come and be safe here together. More than that, it's an earthly reflection of the heavenly worship that's happening now around the throne of God that causes us to anticipate that day when all the groaning of a fallen world is brought to an end and where we'll all worship Christ in the new creation, freed from the presence of all suffering and sickness and sin, no longer experiencing absence, no longer experiencing violence. The church helps us to long for and wait well for that day together. This is the best day of our week. This is the best thing we could be doing. This is something that helps us weather the storm and long for that new creation together. We need, looking at David's life and experience and even the cries of his heart, we need to gather with God's people. And so ask yourself this morning, how am I engaging with the local church? How am I preparing my heart to come and be together with God's people Am I regularly coming to church and drawing strength from the, the worship, uh, of the gathered worship of believers? Am I seeking God's comfort in my life by living openly with other believers so that they could bear my burdens and, yes, even care for me? Am I preparing my heart to worship during the week before Sunday morning um, by praying that God would meet us here, by praying he would pour out his spirit and give us gifts of prophecy just like Jerry shared with us today? Are you preparing to be together by saying, Lord, equip me and help me to love my brothers and sisters. Give me a word of encouragement. Give me strength to serve them. Are we preparing our hearts by reading the passage even that we're going to hear preached beforehand so that our hearts could be in tune and aligned with what God has for us in his word? Are we applying the principle that Sunday morning begins on Saturday night (laughs) and getting a good night's rest even? And so simply, Uh, and coming eager to receive the grace of God in Christ? Are we seeking to make the most of the refuge of the church, to make the most of our gathering with God's people, trusting that God will use this time to comfort and strengthen us in a fallen world? So, David, he was absent from that, but we can be present. (laughs) David was absent because he's made a decision to flee to Gath, a decision that wasn't exactly easy for him, but also a decision that wasn't quite faithful either. And this brings us to our second point, that life is a struggle to be faithful. And we read this in verses 1 through 6, that David, he has a decision to make based on the the observation and the circumstances that are around him. He's um, caught in a dilemma, you know, as it were. He sees that Saul is without relent, persecuting him (laughs) and coming after him. He doesn't want to leave the promised land, but he feels like there's nothing more he can do there. He's been living in caves. He's been living in the wilderness. He tried to see if someone like Nabal could help feed his men, all 600 plus of them, and that didn't work out very well. (laughs) And so David has done some trial. He's done some error, and he's come to the conclusion that though he doesn't wish to go, maybe it's best he ought to go. 
and he's come to the land of the Philistines. Faced with this dilemma, David leaves God's place of promise, God's place of presence, and he seeks his security um, amongst the Philistines. He goes to find security there. He goes to find freedom there as he goes to the king and says, hey, give me a town, give me a city for me and my people to be in. Let me find security and freedom apart from the land of promise, apart from the place of God's presence. And we can see here ultimately that though we can sympathize with David's dilemma, it seems like a hard situation to be in, right? We shouldn't just write it off like, come on, David, how unfaithful of you to leave the land. (laughs) We can sympathize with David, yet... He ends up, as Dale Ralph Davis says, looking to Philistia rather than Yahweh as his security. And as he's aiming to be prudent, he's trying to be wise. Saul is not letting up. I have mouths to feed. I need a place to be. He decides instead of continuing to trust in God. And the God, mind you, who's proven himself to be trustworthy, he's protected David this entire time. He struck down Nabal on his behalf. He even, far from having David being delivered into Saul's hand, he delivered Saul into David's hand. Not once, but twice. David has been shown by God that God would be faithful to protect and to sustain him if he would remain where he's called him to be. But instead, David, against the grain of the storyline of 1 Samuel, moves away from God and seeks to find his place of safety, security, and freedom elsewhere. He looks at his situation and he concludes, there's nothing for me here. (laughs) Might as well go on to Gath. By his own appraisal, he's determined that he can't experience any peace in Israel. And he's functionally believing that he's at a place in his life where God's help may not be there for him. That's where he's at. A place where he needs to cut his losses and escape his circumstances instead of trusting that God would continue working in them. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like there's nothing for me here? Honestly, in in your heart of hearts, that you're in a situation in which it would seem impractical, unhelpful, or even foolish to believe that the Lord can actually help you, that he can actually sustain you or work in you. Finding yourself in a situation where it just seems too hard to continue faithfully, where you're tempted to break a covenant promise or you're tempted to abdicate a God-given role or responsibility, tempted to quit something, tempted to settle for less than the peace and joy that God can bring you in that particular aspect of your life. This is where we can connect to David. If that's any of us, and from time to time, that's all of us, it's very important we notice the language in the text. Look with me at verse 1. It says, Then David said in his heart, He said in his heart, meaning that this is the message, that there was no hope here. Cut your losses. God is not with you. He can't help you. This is the message that David was speaking to himself, persuading himself to believe, telling himself uh, was true. And this is significant for us because as Dale Ralph Davis says again, what you say and keep saying to the center of you, that is your heart, will direct your way. All of us, he says, propagandize our souls. That is, we constantly talk to ourselves. (laughs) David's words directed his way, and that led him to Gath. 
And as Richard Phillips comments and remarks, he says, David counseled his heart with unbelieving words. So it's no wonder that his heart responded not in faith, but in folly and unbelief. David spoke to his heart and he counseled to his heart. And so briefly, a few questions for us as we look at where we're at in our lives right now. What are you telling yourself about where you're at right now? What is it that you're speaking to your heart? With what sort of words are you counseling your heart? As you face down whatever decisions are before you, whatever calls to faithfulness that you've received, what are you saying to yourself? Are you telling yourself to lean on God's wisdom? Are you encouraging yourself to trust in his faithfulness? Are you encouraging yourself to do whatever you do for the glory of God with all your might? Are you reminding yourself you've been bought with the price and therefore you must honor Christ with the life that you have because life you have is wholly his? Are you doing these things as you speak to yourself? What is it you're speaking to yourself? And a follow-up question that it's very important we apply. Are you the only one that you're hearing from? Are you the only one that you're hearing from? Meaning, even as you would counsel your own heart, are you receiving counsel from anyone else? And I ask this because of the two biblical realities that we see in the Bible, that even as we're redeemed people, full of God's spirit, we're still tempted to do things our own way, aren't we? We're still lacking understanding. We're still needing discernment. And we need, we need help with that. And secondly, because God's word expressly tells us in Proverbs eleven fourteen, where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. In a world of difficult circumstances and the limitation of our own wisdom, we need the biblical counsel of trusted friends. We need biblical counsel. We need someone to help us discern the will of God and to make decisions that are based upon faithfulness to God's word and to God's will. Not out of fear, even if it would be something that the world would say would be wise, right? The world might say what David was wise, but God's word was, would say that if he's acting out of a place of fear and not trusting in the promises of God, it won't lead him anywhere that is good. So right now, ask yourself, where in your life do you need counsel? And are you asking for it? Are you seeking counsel regarding an upcoming purchase, regarding a move of physical location, a new place to live, a new job? Do I stay? Do I go? Are you seeking counsel on a relationship? Do I pursue this? Do I pursue it with this person? Is this relationship headed toward marriage and where it ought to be going? And even in our marriages, are we seeking counsel from other couples as we navigate the difficult circumstances that come about when two sinners enter into a covenant union together? Are we seeking counsel on the big questions and the big things of our lives? In regards to decisions, David made one, and we see here that it was a bad one. He was unfaithful, but, and where we end today, is that that didn't stop God from being merciful. And this brings us to point number three, that while life is painful and a struggle, yet by God's grace, life is still fruitful. And so we've come now from the land of promise. We find ourselves in Gath, the Philistines. David has sought refuge and security elsewhere. He's making decisions and counseling his own heart with unbelieving words. And now he is finding himself in a 16-month period of exile, of limbo, of waiting, of being somewhere he doesn't want to be. Yet, 
even as he's in exile. And part of this, yes, is downstream of his own unfaithfulness. The grace of this text is that even so, he still manages to serve God's purposes. By God's grace, even as he's wound up in Gath and is now living like a desert raider, executing violent raids, telling Achish she's attacking Israel as a cover story, and sharing the spoil with a pagan king, God is simultaneously using David to accomplish his purposes and serve his people. And that might seem hard to believe at a surface reading of the text, but we're going to look into three areas in which we see David living fruitfully, glorifying God, and even serving his purposes, even as he's found himself in this messy place, a messy place that he's been led to on account of his own sin, on account of the suffering in the world, on account of the difficulty and complexity of of life in a fallen world. Even here, though his life is marked by imperfection, God's grace meets him, and he can be fruitful. And so we see this in the text in three ways. If you look with me at verses 5 and 6, when David comes to town... He says to Akish, you know, I got a, a large band, large army here, and we had a previous run-in where you were su- suspicious of me, <laughs> and you ran me out of town. Maybe it's better if I go elsewhere. You know, why should your servant be too near to the king? Give me my own place to be. Let me stretch my legs out a little bit. And so Akish says, sure, I'll give you Ziklag. <laughs> and that might just seem like to you another town. But what's significant about Ziklag, the place that David receives, it says in the text that David received it then, And in verse 6 at the end, Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. So David receives a piece of land that the people of Israel will keep uh, up until at least the point of the time of writing of 1 Samuel. It becomes Israel's land, though it belonged to the Philistines. And the significance here is that this land was originally allotted to the people of Israel by Joshua. In Joshua chapter 15, he said, Here, the land of Ziklag for the people of Judah. It's yours. It belongs to you. And as David comes and even leaves the promised land and goes into the land of the Philistines, he's actually taking back land that God promised to his people. Even in this alone, David is occupying land for God's people. Though he appears to be turning traitor and moving away from them, in this he's actually simultaneously, probably not his plan, but by God's grace, he's serving God's people not turning traitor to them. He's gained the land of Ziklag back, and the kings of Judah will occupy it to this day. That's one way in which he's blessed God's people, even in this place of of exile. Secondly, he's succeeding where Saul failed with the Amalekites. Look with me at verses 8 and 9. As it's mentioning the raids that David made, um, he's said to raid against the Geshurites and the Gerzites, but also the Amalekites. The Amalekites were the enemy of Israel from of old, right? They attacked the caravan train of people leaving Egypt in the Exodus, even attacking non-combatants like women and children. And from that point on, God said, blot out Amalek, right? Erase Amalek from the earth. This is our perpetual enemy. Saul, earlier on in the book, he had the chance to do what? To destroy them. And Saul didn't do so. And so we see here David, though he hasn't been given the same express charge by God, that is to devote them all to destruction, and take no spoil like Saul received. Even as David's here, he's doing what Saul should have done. He's showing himself to still be the guy who is reflective of the king we need and not so reflective of the king we don't need. He is fighting the Amalekites. He's defeating them. He's destroying them. He is doing God's work as he's an instrument of God's justice in the world. He's fighting off the Amalekites. 
Second, thirdly, it says here that he also made raids against the Geshurites and the Gerzites. For, it says in verse 8, these were the inhabitants of the land from old. And as David is defeating the inhabitants of the land from of old, he's defeating peoples that Israel should have conquered immediately after the generation of Joshua, hundreds of years ago, but yet the land has remained unconquered. And so in his own way, even far removed from God's presence and uh, promised land, he is expanding the borders of Israel in, in this way. He is actually completing and fulfilling the conquest of Canaan. While he's on the run, while he's in exile, while he's in Gath for 16 months, he is taking back the land by fighting off the people. God said, you should have been conquering hundreds of years ago. That being the Geshurites, who were a people in the south of the land associated with the Philistines and the Avim, who were the giant peoples that Israel, in part, was afraid to go fight when they sent the spies out to the land. They said, these guys are really tall, they're really big, we, we can't fight these guys. He, he's fighting off the Geshurites, as well as the Gerzites, which is either another way of saying Geshurites, just a different Hebrew spelling, or it's referring to a people who were from the north, yet for some reason had some people down south that David also fought off. The point being that as David is here in Gath, he manages to take back land that would serve his people. He manages to glorify God in his justice and complete the conquest of Canaan in a strange, unplanned, and mysterious way. David has served the Lord. David has been useful. David has been fruitful in furthering the purposes of God. Do we see that in the text? As one scholar says of David's activities, he says that Israel should have exterminated these ancient enemies during their conquest of the promised land. David is thus fulfilling the law and does not incur, incur any blood guilt for their deaths. And with regard to the Amalekites, David's actions against them accomplish what Saul did not. And so David, he's doing good work. And one way we could say, yes, David is redeeming the time. But we need to qualify that a little bit and conclude here. Because the end point of this text isn't a deviation from where we started, saying that it's not all about David's example. Because if all we heard here was that David got himself in this situation, and then he did a good job. Hey, you do a good job too. You know, you work hard, you go fight off the Amalekites, you go pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and you work. That'd be missing the point. The point is that by God's grace, David was fruitful not by his own hard work, not by his own ingenuity, because the text doesn't even make it clear that David is totally aware of what he's doing. He's saying, I'm fighting off these people so that they don't leave a trail. I need to preserve myself. <laughs> Through his sin and his unfaithfulness, his weakness, his short-sightedness, God was working simultaneously to glorify himself. God was meeting David in grace so that his life could be fruitful for his purposes. And that's what we can't miss. It's by God's grace here because it's not about imitating David's strength or his example. He's there because of his sin, living like an uncommissioned Philistine double agent. But by God's grace, God still uses David. And that's where the gospel comes in, church. It's God's grace that David's sin didn't disqualify him from serving God's purposes. It's God's grace that any of us coming from our own sin and treason against the king who is, even as we're living our lives week in and week out, and we're so drawn away by our own desires, so fearful and unfaithful in our decision-making, 
so reluctant to seek God's counsel, so averse sometimes to living openly with God's people. It's God's grace that we could come into this place and we could worship him even with our imperfect offering. And you know what? He'd receive it. He would receive it. He'd be pleased by it. And he would continue to use us and to work in us and to sustain us even as we do things that put us in our own gath of sorts. And the encouraging thing is that even in that place of gath, David was able to be useful to God such that right now, if any of you are finding yourself in that place, even as Jerry mentioned, finding yourself in that darkness, realizing that you're where you are because it's downstream of unfaithful, even sinful decisions, turn right now and serve God. In grace, because of the gospel, because Christ has covered your sin, he's taken your shame. You can walk into the light and expect to be met by a God who will receive you in grace and who will use you for his glory right now. You don't have to wait for that. You don't have to clean yourself up first. He will take you, he will use you, and he will not reject you. Because Christ, church, and his perfect faithfulness, he's covered all of our imperfect faithfulness. He lived the perfectly faithful life. He received the violence of the cross so that our violence would be atoned for, our unfaithfulness and the, the guilt and the judgment it deserves would be taken away. And he gives to all who would receive him his perfect record of righteousness, his perfect faithfulness before God. And we become in him sons and daughters like him, of whom God said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And receiving that grace, oh, we don't go on and say, let's stay in Gath then. This is cool. It worked out for me. I was able to sin and God still used me. No. Receiving that grace, we turn and all the more live for the glory of Christ, who was faithful in our unfaithfulness, who was perfect in our imperfection, who has delivered us by grace so that we could live for his glory. Would we do that, church? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you find us in the, the worst, in the darkest, in the messiest sorts of places, and you meet us in grace, that you meet us with kindness, and that you, you've covered all our sin. You've taken away our guilt and shame. You've given to us all who would come into you your record of perfect faithfulness and righteousness such that we can stand before God as imperfect as we still are and give him praise and give him worship and give him the offering of our lives trusting and having the joy that he'd be pleased by that. Oh Lord, give us your grace that we might glorify you. Not that we would take advantage of it or presume upon it and go back to Gath, but that we would come out and glorify you and turn from wherever we are even now to live for you with renewed vigor and encouragement. Be glorified in us, we ask and we pray in Jesus' name.